0: I have been gone for a while. Um, I know that uh, some people, some people maybe new here, are like, "Hey, dude, who's that guy?" Uh, I'd really like the guy that was here last week, um, and you're probably thinking, "Hey, can I get to his church real quick, or am I gonna miss that?" They meet at five, so you got plenty of time to get downtown and see them. But. Truth, I'm going to be helping them out tonight, so it's going to really blow your mind if you show up down there and I'm standing there. So, um, but it's been a it's been a privilege. I've kind of been all over the road a little bit. Um, I've done everything from teaching a middle school conference with about 500 kids to going out and seeing some family. We've taken the kids to camp, and we did a I did a wedding last weekend for some of my youth kids, uh, used to old youth kids that are getting married. And so it's just been a, a little bit of a whirlwind of of kind of doing stuff. But I've I've appreciated the break, and but I'm really excited uh, to be back. And if you're here for the first time or you came for the first time last uh, month. Um, man, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Jim, super glad to be here. Hopefully, we'll get to know each other a little bit. It's an exciting time to be part of this church. We deeply, deeply believe that. We've got a lot of growing edges. We've got a lot of issues. We've got a lot of things, but we just believe that it's a cool time to be a part of what God is doing here. We're, we're young, and we're new, and God is breathing life into us literally on a daily basis, and so um, we're glad you're here. We're glad you trusted us with part of your, your Sunday uh, morning experience. So Really, for the past couple of weeks, I've been reading and studying uh, the, the R- book of Romans, but really chapter 7 and 8. And I actually don't really know why. I just, the Lord has kind of directed my heart there. And I've just spent a lot of time reading and praying and spending time with Romans 7 and 8. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, it's, it's an interesting book because Paul is writing to a group of Roman Christians who've got a well, they've got a lot of issues, and they need a lot of reassurance that God loves them and that God is for them because the world that they live in is against them. Because the Romans hated Christians. They hated Christians. They hated Christians for really one reason, because Christians believed there was one God. Romans were fine with the fact that you, the Christians believed in a God. They didn't care about that. They just hated the fact that the Christians denied every other God. And so Christians were hated by, or the Romans were hated by Christians, era, excuse me, Christians were hated by the Romans. We know that from history. All those kind of things that you learned growing up about how the Romans, you know, the Colosseums and all that. I mean, they hated Christians. Well, the Romans were facing, Roman Christians were facing this sort of constant onslaught of needing reassurance. Go, man, these things that we're facing are incredibly difficult, and we need reassurance that God... God kind of loves me. So I've been spending time with this, um, I really don't know why, but just sort of wrestling with it. It's a really powerful book. I mean, it's written from a really kind of theological perspective, it's some of Paul's most kind of complex work, but it speaks to, I think, some really important questions. One of those questions came up uh, at the end of June when I was spending time, I took the whole family, went to Colorado, and I spoke at this conference for about 500 middle school kids. And so my daughter, Haley, is getting ready to go into middle school, which... I really don't know what to do with that. Um, We're having all kinds of new issues with things and coolness and stuff. And so, you know, it was never a problem for me. I was naturally just cool. And so, you know, (laughs) um, yeah, I peaked in the sixth grade, right? So... uh, no, so, so uh, you know, I was, at this, I was looking around at these kids, and I was thinking, how can I be this, I mean, I, I'm old enough to have middle, school it was just weird, and so, um, but I was, I was preaching every night, and, and we were talking about just how much God loves us and what he's did for us, and it was just an amazing experience and week, but one night in particular, I had this middle school, seventh grade boy, about 14, maybe 13 years old, come up to me afterwards, and he just asked if he could visit with me for a few minutes, and, and that happens a lot, and I visit with all these kids, and I really just love the opportunity to think differently about, about, about presenting the gospel. That I may do here on a Sunday morning And this this kid said to me He goes, we sat on this, this couch right there In the middle of this kind of conference center And he said I feel like the whole world is against me And I said, okay, well tell me about it So we started talking He was kind of explaining why Things were just lining up And it felt like as if everything in his life Was at a place where it was just pushing back against him. And they weren't world-changing things. I mean, but for him and his fourteen year old kind of middle school world, they were a big deal. And it felt like as if the universe was kind of conspiring against him. And as I sat there and I listened to this kid, I thought there's there's so much honesty buried in there because I feel that way often actually. I feel like that sometimes I have days or weeks or seasons in my life where it just feels like, even as a follower of the Lord, that things are just lining up. And if one more thing goes wrong I'm mean, going to think there's some kind of conspiracy out there. We had one of those days not too long ago, actually. We took the kids to camp. Uh, I have an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old. We took the kids to camp um, a couple of, uh, I guess it was about three weeks ago. And it was they were going to stay there for two weeks. It was the first time that Meredith and I were going to be shipping the kids off for any extended period of time, more than about a night. And Meredith was a wreck, you know, the whole time. Because Haley at 11, she's been before, she's fine. But Cooper, if you guys have met him or know him, um, he uh, he's really loves his mom. And so, um, this was going to be a hard one. And so, you know, Meredith had cried two weeks prior, you know, and all those kind of things. And we, we drive them up there to Missouri, and we, we drop them off, and they kind of whisk them away, and they do this whole thing. It had been a, a lot of emotion kind of leading up to that. We've had some things go wrong. I had backed into somebody in the car the day, about a week, well, a couple days before, you know, not a person, okay, but another car. And, uh, and so, you know, we had to do that. had to pay for this. And then the ACs went out in her house, and so we had to replace both. You know, it's all these things which were going wrong. And Meredith super emotional. Emotional anyway, because we're dropping the kids off, and we they whisk him away and took him away, and Haley's kind of crying, and Cooper's like, "See ya," but we knew he was gonna get sad soon. And we're driving home, just the two of us, right, from Missouri back to Oklahoma City. We hadn't spoken in like two hours, three hours. We're just she's just kind of crying, and I'm playing with the radio, you know, and so. <laughs> This thing broke. I, I keep going, you hear that noise? Like my dad used to do. There's a tapping somewhere. you got to put your hands on everything. Just trying to create some kind of something, right? And uh, the little light sensor on our, our car comes on and says, check the tire pressure or whatever. I'm not a mechanic. And so it says, check the tire pressure. And so we were kind of outside of Joplin. We pull over to this Love's. This story is getting long. Pull over this Love's truck stop. Right, big truck stop. And on one side is like for normal people and their cars. And then on the other side, you've been to those, it's like giant roll on Alabama big rigs, the whole deal, right? And so we're over here, and and I I pull up and we get gas, and then I go to the little air pressure thing. Of course, it's a dollar and quarters. And nobody carries a dollar and quarters. And so I've got to go in and get change. And as I'm getting change, I I get change for the the dollar. And the guy says, you know, if if you pull into the truck bays, the big truck bays, they've got these big barrel drums and it's free air. And I'm not supposed to tell anybody, but I mean, Well, now I'm holding four quarters. I'm like, oh, well, can I get a dollar back? Because nobody knows, you know. But I was like, that's fine. I mean, so I said, oh, thanks for the advice, man. That's great. So I I get back in the car and I'm like, free air. And so Meredith's not talking or whatever. She's crying. So I'm like, okay. And so I, free air. I'm excited, you know, because it's free. And so I pull around the thing and I go around the whole building. And there's, I mean, there must be 250 just huge 18 wheelers. I'm kind of wiggling in between there looking for the free air, you know. And so you pull around the corner and it's all these bays. There's like big eight bays. there's all full except the one on the end, right, and so I'm like, sweet, so we kind of whip through there, and uh, I pull the car in there, and I, I hop out, and, and sure enough, there's a huge, like, five-gallon drum on the side of this post, and it's about, well, I do about eight feet high, and it's got a big old hose on it, and uh, so I pull up, and, and I, I get that thing out, and I check the tire pressure, you know, because I, I had to buy one of those things, and of course, I didn't carry one, and, um, and so I check it, and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe it's low, whatever, so I was going to put air in there, and I'm, a me- I'm not really a mechanic, I check the blinker fluid over there, too, and so there's no blinker fluid, so anyway, I... Uh, <laughs> Somebody's like blinker fluid. I gotta check that blinker fluid. Um, so anyway, I pull this thing down, and it's got tons of pressure. I mean, I mean, so I yank this thing down, and it, it's it's on such a kind of a tight reel that it's it's literally it will pull my arms up. So. I figure out the best way to do it is if I yank it down, I stand on it, right, on the hose. So I'm standing on the hose so that it doesn't just sort of suck back up in the thing. And I'm kind of kneeling down. Meredith, you know, she's not helping or anything. This is fine. I mean, this is my deal. And so I'm a, I've got the thing out there, and I get it on there. And I got this thing on there, and, I'm, and this thing is inflating, you know, I mean, air shooting in there. And I don't know, I'm not as nimble as I used to be. I lost my balance, and I move my foot, and that thing goes, boom. And when it did, it took that little valve, whoosh, ripped it right out of the tire air starts going, psh. I mean, my hair was flying, was like Barry White music playing, psh, you know, I mean, everything's flying back, and I don't know what to do, so I've got my hand on it, it doesn't help, right, I mean, how are you going to drive like that, I'm like, I got it, just keep going, honey, we'll get there, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm seeing a spray and air at me, right, and I'm just going, ah, and it is like, the car is now sinking to the ground, this thing's got there, and the thing is jammed in the hose, which is now at the top of the drum, and it's spraying air, psh, Straight to the deal because my nozzle's in there and airs now flying out. And now I'm like this and I, I, it's totally flat to the point where the rim is on the ground. Seven seconds, right? I look around to see if anybody saw. <laughs> I'm going, this is a terrible day. So I kind of walk around to the car and I look in the door. She's like, How is, what, what was that? And I was like, I got nothing. Hey, you want to go inside for a minute maybe? and Maybe get a hot dog? I'll be out here for a while. So I was like, i got to change the tire. Well, you know, I'm a mechanic. I've done all that stuff. So long story really short. I had to get underneath there and find a jack. First of all, I can't find those things in cars anymore. And so the jacket. But the thing was that every time an 18-wheeler would come across all those bays, because they couldn't see me all the way in there, and they'd turn, and I'd be on the ground with the car all jacked up. I'd be like, hey, man. Uh, got a thingy stuck in this thing. And it's spraying air still, right? I don't know how to get it out. It's still probably still there. And I was like, Hey. Got a car deal. Sorry. Alabama. You know, and so he he has to back an 18-wheeler, back up. And it happened like five times, all right? I was was like, sorry, dude, the thingy got the broke, and I had my foot on it, and then it shot out, and... It was a disaster. And so I get that tire. Of course, the spare tire's is flat. I'm to air that thing up, too. And Meredith was like, don't use that. I was like, well, it's free. You know, so we had to go. Once I got it on, we rolled to a different bag, and I kind of filled it up real carefully. But we got down the road, and, you know, we had to get the tire fixed, and pay for that. And then, the, of course, the sensor on that thing is like hundreds of dollars or whatever. And so but I just thought, man, I know this thing. Sometimes that feels like in our lives, these things just conspire against us. Now, as I started talking to this kid. We are talking more and more, and when we turned towards the Lord, and we started talking about what God was doing, I really began to realize what was at the sort of centerpiece of this kid's question, and his, his statement, and his feelings. And it was really this, does God really love me? It wasn't so much that the world is against me. He just, I mean, he's hearing me at night talk about this amazing relationship with the Lord, and how God is so good, and God is for him, and God loves him. And he's hearing all these things, and he's feeling in his life like all these things are going horrible. And he's just going well, maybe God loves everybody else, but, but does God really love me? Now, don't dismiss that question, because actually it's a really important question. It's, and I think it's one of the most important questions that we never really ask out loud. And I started thinking about that. Does God really love me? And, and our kind of inflated, quick nature to say yes, of course he does, because God is love. I learned that in Sunday school when I was growing up or whatever. And, and I know that God loves me, but we don't allow ourselves to venture into this sort of, I mean, but, but, but why? And really? And maybe the second question, which we're going to tackle next week is, will God ever stop loving me? Can I ever do anything to make God not love me? I started thinking about that question. I was in that book of Romans chapter seven. You don't have to follow this. I'll I'll tell you where we're going to be in a second. I came across these words of Paul. Paul says this, I find this at work in me. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But in another way, I see another work in members of my body waging a war against me. The law of sin is at war within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I mean, these are the words of Paul. What he's saying is, look, I know that God is for me. And he's telling this to this group of Roman believers. I know that God is for me. But, but there's something else that's going on inside of me. I know me. Something else going on inside of me. And I am a wretched person. And sort of buried in those layers, I think, is that question. I mean, God, why do you love this? Right? I mean, this thing, why do you love me? Or, or do you really love me? And Paul, I think, kind of ventures that response. And so I don't think it's out of the question for you and I to kind of go, God, do you really love me? And so I want to pay attention to that question today because I think it's a question that we don't ask all that. And I'm not going to give you the short little kind of quippy Sunday school answer because God is love. I want you to see the real deep biblical reasons and demonstration improves on, on, on why and how God really, really loves you and he loves me. And then next week, using the second verses that, that we're going to look at today, we're going to tackle the question, will God ever stop loving me? So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to do this uh, relatively quickly, um, but I want you to see this stuff because it's... It's really powerful, and it's it's a little deeper than we may normally go sometimes, but I think I want you to see the kind of depth and power that Paul's kind of telling these Roman Christians. He's saying, look, you want proof that God is for you. Do you want proof that God really loves you? Then listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. That's kind of what Paul's setting up. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. If not, there's one probably within arm's distance of you. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verse thirty one today and we'll go through 34 and then tomorrow or tomorrow uh you guys can come to the house we'll do this tomorrow uh sunday we'll go 35 through the rest of the chapter but um let's let's take a look at these verses together And before we we read god's word let's just take a moment let's just pray god i do thank you that um there is nothing in this world i could ever do to earn your love but god i confess that i've often asked uh why you love me or do you love me uh really I think that all of us have had moments in our life where we just sort of questioned. We've just kind of said, God, if, if, if you're real, why does it feel right now like everything's going wrong? Or God, if you're real, why, why, why do I not feel that? Or why do I not, whatever that question is. And I think it's fair for us to ask because I think you want to tell us. I think you want to show us. I think in the entirety of Scripture is filled with you wanting to show us why you love us. So take just a moment in your heart and just right where you are and ask God to to sort of prepare you just to hear his word this morning, Just, just a little bit, just to prepare you to hear his word. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know them. Just pray that God would move in them, be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would um, teach us, that you would allow your word to become alive to us. God, we uh, ask that you would move in our hearts, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, if if you've been here very often, well, not in the past few weeks, but if you've been here very often, well, when I've been here, when I've been teaching, I'll be the first to tell you that it's really hard to do what I'm getting ready to do, which is pick up in the middle or the end of a chapter and just sort of go with it. Um, Scripture... It demands to be read in context, and it's important to be read in context. And so we're picking up at the the tail end of a a really important thought. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, actually, any really time catching you up, but I just want you to understand that there's something much bigger going on than just what we're exploring. Um, Romans chapter 8, actually, these these few verses that we're going to look at have, Paul kind of puts out four rhetorical questions, and those four rhetorical questions actually summarize the entirety of the first seven chapters of the book. Those questions are really meant to summarize the major movements that Paul makes all the way up until Romans, the middle of Romans chapter 7. So what we're going to glance at is actually a sort of brief summary of a huge move that Paul has done through the entirety of the book. And and so it's not like we can just sort of pick it up. And, and also the verses that are in 828 that some of us are familiar with, and we know that it's, it's God uh, works for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. Those verses that we're skipping uh, this morning are really important foundations for what we're going to look at. So if you get a chance and you want to backtrack, it's really powerful to read this stuff in context because these Roman Christians, they were facing incredible opposition and the world was against them literally. And so they were in deep need of, of reaffirmation that God was not only in love with them, but that God was for them, that he was their advocate. And so that's kind of in the middle of what we're picking up. And we're going to pick up in verse 31. And we're going to explore it through the lens of that kind of question. God, are you for me? Do you really love me? And this is what Paul says to this group of... Uh, of Roman Christians, verse 31, chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say in response to this? Okay, so you got to kind of backtrack a little bit and know what those questions are. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, he was raised to life, and he's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And we're going to pick up 35 next week. Now, it sounds like a mouthful because Romans is a mouthful. It's written from a deeper theological kind of perspective to answer some deep questions that were plaguing the hearts of these Roman believers. And the one that's on the forefront really is, God, how do we know that you are really for us? I mean, with the things that we're facing, the struggles that we're having, how do we know that you really love us? And as I thought about this, this young kid's question to me, or really the feelings wrapped up in that, I thought in my own heart, God, how do I know that you really love me? I mean, besides the fact that you just say it. I mean, you tell me you love me, but, but is that enough? Should it be enough? What does that mean to me? But as I was studying Romans, what I realized is that Paul's laying out something here they're almost like some proofs buried in there, if you will, some promises that he makes about God's love that I think are, are really important uh, for us to kind of grasp. And the first two come out of chapter, right out of there, out of verse 32. And they're in that one little verse where he said, that he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, well, I think about the, the answer to the question, "Is God really love me? It's really, there's a couple of things that it's wrapped up in that come out of that verse. The first two things I want you to hear. The first is that God was intricately involved in the plan of salvation. Now, I know that that doesn't sound like that big of a surprise, okay? But, but Paul's talking about God the Father. And God the Father is intricately involved in the ordering of salvation, It's God who put these things into place. It's God who did not spare his own son. It's God who, the Father who created and sacrificed and sent and gave us his son. Now I'm not downplaying the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and the the totality of that and all the completeness. But that's not what Paul's doing. What Paul is doing is he's painting a picture of God's initiative to come up with a plan by which he would sacrifice his son for the plight of humanity. Now, it's a deep thought, but I really want you to hang on to it, because oftentimes we take the Father's move out of the work of salvation. We just have Jesus, who voluntarily offers himself up as a sacrifice, Jesus, both God and both man, offering himself as a sacrifice, going to the cross, and then somehow maybe pleading with God to get involved, as he's hanging there on the cross, pleading with God to intercede for humanity, that that Jesus somehow this sort of instigator and in making God and a kind of a begrudgingly kind of God looking down and Jesus going, no, listen, love creation. But it's really not what it's at play at all. It's God's initiation and God's move. God comes up with this plan whereby which he dearly loses something that he dearly loves. And sometimes we miss that moment. We see the agony of Christ on the cross. We sing about it. We, we celebrate it on some level, although as gut-wrenching and as difficult as it is, we celebrate it on Easter and we lift those things up, but very seldom do we think of the move that God the Father played, that he was so deeply and desperately in love with creation that he ordered this movement of salvation that whereby which he would sacrifice the son that he loved so dearly. Now, you got to understand, the first piece of that is that God's involved in this, but the second piece of this really is that we see God's involvement in the precious nature of Jesus, his son. A lot of times we forget this relationship. We forget that this is, there is no other more loving relationship that the father God has ever had with a human than he has with his own son, Jesus. God will never have a relationship like that. Jesus was perfectly sinless. In fact, when Jesus was baptized and he comes out of the Jordan River, God speaks from heaven and he said, "'This is my son whom I love.'" and with whom I'm well pleased. This is the perfect relationship. Jesus had always been obedient to the Father. It is the expression of perfect love. God will never love a human more than he loved his own son. That's just the reality in Scripture. It's a deep Love that none of us can contemplate. When we think about Abraham back in Genesis where God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac, some of us can contemplate what that emotion might feel like, right? To think about what it might be to lose your son. But our earthly relationships are steeped in sin and selfishness and struggle. But the relationship that God had with His son, Jesus, was flawless. It was perfect. It wasn't steeped in sin. It was what love looked like. You know, I always tell Cooper this, we, we, you know, at night when we pray or when I lay down with him or when I'm just hanging around him because I love being around him so much, my eight-year-old, I just say, there has never, ever been a, a daddy that has loved their son as much as I loved you. And Cooper always says, real snarky, not in like that kind of like, oh yeah, there is. He's like, oh yeah, there is. God loved Jesus more. He always says that. And he does it in that kind of way. It's like, mm-hmm, see, there is somebody. And so, but he loves to do that. Now it's the big joke. I'm like, there's never been a daddy that's has loved, loved their son more. Oh yeah, God loves Jesus more. So what do you mean about that? So I go, that's true, he loves it. So, But that's the picture, is that there's never been a love um, that will be greater or expressed more. Now, now, if you or I were there on the day that Jesus was crucified, all right, and we were standing there on the, uh, outside the cross, what we would see is what any other non-disciple saw. We would see a, a criminal, someone who was maybe a murderer or a thief or whatever. We would see an ordinary person dying on a cross for a crime that they committed. That's what we would have seen. It's just, that's just the reality of the situation. Any non-disciple would have seen this, this, this criminal hanging on this Roman instrument of torture and death outside the city where they took criminals. But you see, what God saw when he looked down on his son was not that. And probably at no other point in all of history had God wanted to look at creation and say, Do you not know what's happening? That my son, who was flawless and perfect, who I've loved more than anything, right, is doing this for you. See, the Father is experiencing this gut-wrenching agony. There's no one that he wanted to see less up on that cross than his own son. So, so many times we take God's relationship out of play. We think about the agony of Jesus and we watch, uh, you know, the, 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 the movies. Or we watch The Passion of the Christ and we see the agony of Jesus, but so often we fail to see the agony of the Father. Father had sent his son to die and and, and that we serve a God and the compassion of God is not just wrapped up in what Jesus did on the cross but what God did when he sacrificed his son what kind of love does that I mean this is perfect sinless Jesus who had no place upon that cross, you and I and all of creation were supposed to basically be there, our sin was disrupting the harmony that we had with God not Jesus, there was no reason for Jesus to be there So when perfect, sinless Jesus hangs on the cross, and he cries out at the top of his lungs, God, God, why have you forsaken me? And God literally can't answer. We see the agony of Christ feeling abandoned, feeling, feeling forsaken. But what about the agony of a father that knows that his son has done nothing, but that all the sin of humanity now hangs with him? In fact, we read in Corinthians that Jesus actually became sin. Then Jesus had always been obedient to God, always. God had always been pleased with him. Jesus had never done anything to warrant anything. And yet he is now battered and bruised and beaten and he hangs on this cross. As I thought about this and I thought about, God, do you really love me? I think about love in my own terms. In other words, how do you show me your love, right? You tell me you love me. I mean, I tell my kids, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I just hope they catch it. Because in their humanness, they'll never really see sometimes the sacrifices that parents make. You know, and then of course they remember all the things that we do do wrong. It's not that perfect demonstration, but God I started thinking about God's love. God, how do I know you really love me? Look what you gave for me. Look at the agony that you, perfect father, went through so that I might simply know you. Thought about that and I thought, man, that is a gut wrencher because it's not just about the pain that Jesus went through, but it's about the fact that we have a father who suffered in deep agonies. He sacrificed his son. This is a God and a love that I, I don't truly know, but how deep and how real it is. And then, quickly, Paul wraps this sort of thing up with this complete expression. All right, and then I'm going to jump out of here. But Paul says this. He says, who is it that, he, that condemns? All right, who is, he's asking these questions. Who is it that condemns? And then he gives a a reason why no one can condemn. He says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Paul does a really powerful move here that most of us won't see because we're not reading all of Romans in context. But he paints sort of this fourfold expression of the totality of the life of Christ and the sacrifice of the Father in four moves. It's Christ who died, Christ who was raised, right? Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father and Christ who intercedes. And he had been painting this picture all through Romans to get us to this one place. When I think about God's love, I think about the totality of the movement of salvation. Christ died. Romans chapter 3, right, Paul tells us that we've all got sin. Every single one of us, we've got it. You can't get away from it. In fact, if you say you don't have it, you make God out to be a liar, we learn in 1 John. Romans chapter 6 tells us that the wages of that sin is what? Death means a due penalty for you and not, not perversion. Anything that separates us from God, anything is death. But we didn't die. Because Jesus, who God sent, died in our place. He bore the penalty of sin. Jesus died. And then we have Jesus, the resurrection, which oftentimes we just sort of tack on as an afterthought to the crucifixion. But the resurrection is the single greatest event in all of human history. The resurrection is a person. The resurrection is vindication. It's God proving of the movement of salvation. It's God conquering death. It's God giving us life. Paul himself says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, every single thing that we believe is totally and absolutely in vain. It's worthless. So you have Christ bearing and becoming sin the penalty and dying. You have Jesus being raised by the movement, the vindication of the Father, the life-giving move, conquering death once for all. Then you see that Jesus has this place where he now, the risen Christ, sits at the right hand of God. Colossians tells us that Jesus literally is the firstborn from among the dead, meaning he's the first. The resurrection Christ is the first. And God has given him dominion and power and rule over creation. That Jesus isn't an afterthought, but he has been given power. Not out of just sort of an expression of power, but as an expression of love. That the God who died for us and was raised from the dead now also is moving, right, in dominion and in purpose throughout all creation. If you read Romans chapter 828, you'll see some of those moves. And then finally, you have this picture of Christ interceding. And don't get that picture in your mind of Christ kind of prayerfully interceding as we use the word, like praying on our behalf, God, you know, have mercy on them and all those kind of things. Really, that's, it's a wrong picture for two reasons. One, it, it incorrectly kind of plays the power piece of Christ. Jesus has complete and total control. He sits at the right hand of God. He doesn't have to plead with God. And the second reason is because we just saw God is involved in our salvation. He's already made the move. He's already sacrificed his son. He doesn't need coaxing or, or pleading. The picture of intercession is what Jesus has done on our behalf when he died on the cross. It is the picture of him standing in between and saying, God's wrath you will never experience because I bore all of it for your sin. And the invitation that we have as followers of Christ is to say, I, I want to know the God who's gave that. As I think about God's love, and I, I wrap it all up by saying this. I never really fully understand that expression, God is love. It's something I learned to say to answer all questions correctly whenever I was in church, but I never really got it. I, I still don't think I do. But when I think about the fact that God really loved me, I think about, oh, I want some tangible things. In other words, bless me and show me you love me. Be a gift giver. But what God did when he said that he really loves me was he gave out of this sort of deep preciousness of relationship with this full, complete expression that involved death and resurrection and dominion and intercession in a way that says, God, I'll never grasp. But your love is real, and it's deeply real. And it's really what we're celebrating when we we engage in this table together. I mean, this is the, the perfect kind of expression for the church to live into this deep, deep love That God has for us. And it's not just a love that's like, oh God, I know you love me. But this is the picture of a love that was lavished and poured out in a way that, frankly, I'll never truly understand. And as the question rolls around in your head, God, do you really love me? And maybe you're on Paul's side of this thing where you say, I've got this war going on inside of me. And I'm a wretched person. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Maybe as we think about God's love that way. The complete expression is perfectly cornered out in what we celebrate this morning. That the God of the universe not only loved us, but gave, gave his son. And Jesus, out of perfect obedience, said, okay, for all of creation. And this is the picture that we celebrate. Does God really love me? Will you answer that question for yourself? Let's pray.